the best tool ever devised for understanding how the world works. Science is a very human form of knowledge. We are always at the brink of the known. Science is a collaborative enterprise spanning the generations. We remember those who prepared the way, seeing through them also. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the June edition of Beer with BMSIS. I'm Jacob Puckmisser, and welcome to uh, this month's show. We have Dr. Craig Hargrove uh, joining us to tell us about the Mars Curiosity mission. If this is your first time tuning into our podcast, uh, you can learn more about our research institute at bmsis.org and listen to previous editions of our podcast at bmsis.org slash podcast. So to kick things off, we have Dr. Jen Blank to introduce us to one of her favorite beverages, and in uh, keeping with the tradition of the show, please only imbibe alcoholic beverages if you are of age in your place of residence. So, Jen, please. Oh, okay, it's my pleasure today to introduce Dr. Craig uh, Hardgrove, but before I do that, I'll tell you about actually a new discovery of mine. It's um, Almond Aid, so it's uh, drinkable by any age or people of any age, and I'm not really into these flavored waters, but um, came across this one recently, and um, it was, I guess I recognized a haircut a friend of mine, <laughs> that's Victoria, the, the I guess the founder of this almond water company, and this is a coconut flavored almond water. It's two two serving comes in a sink, happy two serving size, and it's not too sweet, so I I like it, and uh, I'd recommend it to all of you. Yeah. I'm still alive. <laughs> um, okay, I guess that's enough of that. Um, it, oh, it's actually good cold or at room temperature, so that's kind of cool. It doesn't separate. Um, anyway, today I'm going to introduce Craig Hargrove, who I've met a couple of years ago, and uh, I know a little bit because we're both on the Mars Science Laboratory uh, Curiosity Science team, and uh, so I'm very happy he's going to talk about that today. Craig uh, is one of the, the newest members of Blue, Blue Marble Space Institute of Science, and uh, he has a really interesting background. He comes uh, started out, I guess, with a degree in physics from Georgia Tech, and he then went on to get his PhD at the University of Tennessee working with uh, Professor Jeff Morsh, who's also on the science, MSL science team. And uh, I think, Greg, you could correct me, but I think, um, I guess, your expertise is in imaging and spectroscopy and um, applying that to planetary sciences, or planetary geology and terrestrial geology. So I guess after his PhD, he went and did a postdoctoral studies at Stony Brook University in New York, and then... Um, worked as assistant staff scientist for the Malin Space Sciences Systems, and finally moved to Arizona State University, where he's working with Jim Bell and other members of the MSL science team currently. One thing that's sort of interesting is I was looking up some more factoids about Craig is that he does a lot on the side. He also has his own company, um, which is called Astrum Terra. It's cool. It's essentially, it's a, a collection of gaming scientists who want to promote I think good science in video games, and so they offer their services to consult and advise um, how to sort of maximize the reality and accuracy of science in video games. And he's also, and these essentially these the people in this in this group are all avid gamers and um, share a list of video games. And I've only played one or two of them, so um, it's sort of interesting to read more about these. But he also composes music. In fact, he's he's um, submitted music and won a competition to, um, to uh, contribute music to one of these video game companies. Um, what's it called? Bungie or something? Bungie, <laughs> <And> yeah. <laughs> Bungie, <laughs> sorry. sorry. Um, and one of their um, 
most popular or most well-known games is called Marathon, and there were three different editions of this, and Craig actually has composed music for Marathon, and you can, if you look up his, um, if you look him up and look up Astrum Terra, his, under his bio, you can find a link to this music and download it, and I, I did do that, and I have been listening to it for the past day pretty much nonstop, and really enjoying it, so I will continue to listen to it, and um, I hope you all will check it out, too. So, I guess today he's going to talk about uh, the Mars Science Laboratory Curiosity uh, rover and give us an update on it and talk about the road to Mount Sharp. Thanks, Jen. Uh, that was that was an excellent intro. <laughs> uh, thanks for not embarrassing me too much. Yeah, so as, as you said, I'm, I'm a member of the Curiosity Science team, and so um, I'm a Particularly, I'm, I'm on the instrument team for the neutron detector, uh, which is mounted to the back of the rover, and it tells you about uh, how much, basically how much hydrogen is in the ground underneath the rover. Um, and I'm also on the mass cam team, um, and I focus primarily on the multispectral side of mass cam. Um, I'll, I'll talk some more about that in a minute, but uh, the, the first thing I wanted to mention with Curiosity is that the science team is huge, as you guys know. Um, Jen and I are but two members of a very large, I think it's over 400 people, uh, science team, and so I, I think there's very few of us that are experts in every single aspect of curiosity. Um, it takes the whole team to really come up with conclusions. So some of the areas that I'm focusing on, like I said, are, are on neutron detectors and, and on the, the camera systems, and uh, there are other elements, and some of the greatest discoveries have come from our wet chemistry lab that's effectively in the body of the rover. Um, so I'm, I'm going to talk about those, but uh, I just wanted to mention off the bat that uh, you know I, I'm by no means the, the foremost expert in everything curiosity. So uh, but I'll, I'll do my best. <laughs> so um, I guess to, to start us out, and you guys had a, another great podcast about the sort of the history of why we decided to go to Mount Sharp, but I just wanted to sort of touch on that. Um, it, it's basically we want to find a, a habitable environment, and so the mantra was to find water, and, and we, we found water on Mars. I think, I mean, we could probably talk about how many times we've found water on Mars at this point. It's, <laughs> it's a headline that sort of crops up every once in a while. Um, and so the, the story with Curiosity was to find a place that's habitable and a place that may or may not have had life, but at least it could have had life as we know it. And so uh, we decided to go to this place called Mount Sharp. And one of the more compelling reasons to go to Mount Sharp is that it's it's in sort of it's in the top 20 of the tallest mountains on on Mars. It's uh, about three and a half miles tall, 18,000 feet or so. And so at the base of this mountain are some really really old rocks, and and that's why we wanted to go there. Um, it's right at the there's this thing called the dichotomy boundary on Mars. The the northern hemisphere of Mars is topographically lower than the southern hemisphere. And um, it's right at the boundary. So if we're interested in the, the global history of Mars, uh, we want to look at old rocks because there's a lot of evidence in the scientific literature that way back, billions of years ago, Mars was much warmer and much wetter. And so if we can look at those old billions, billions of years old rocks, um, it might tell us about what, what Mars was like a long time ago when the atmosphere was, was different. And um, one of the really interesting things came from orbital imaging actually orbital spectroscopy of the base of Mount Sharp. When you look at the layers and what Curiosity is going to drive through in the near future, they identified clay-rich layers, and then as you go up in topography, you see sulfate-rich layers, and then you get to this area of basically the upper mound of Mount Sharp that, that just looks like dry old Mars that we, that we know today. And so the most compelling reason to go to Mount Sharp is that we're hoping to reconstruct the geologic history of Mars by driving up this mountain. 
so that, it's really exciting. I think uh, when it when it's couched like that, I mean, we're we're for the first time sort of able to really do some some geology. I mean, we're, we've not to undersell what Spirit and Opportunity have done and, and, and even Pathfinder, but we're we're looking at stratigraphy, and that's what a real geologist would do on Earth, and that's that's what Curiosity's goal is. So I, I've put up a handout here, and I, I sort of am going to wave my arms around uh, some of the things, but one of the images shows uh, an alluvial fan. And so we landed in this spot, and uh, you know, we took a nice first picture looking at Mount Sharp, and and we actually parked on this thing called an alluvial fan, and this is basically drainage from the crater rim. And we identified it from orbit, and we landed on the materials that make up this this drainage. And you can see patterns, you can see uh, inverted channels, and so on alluvial fans in places like Death Valley on Earth, uh, we have channels that form the way you'd normally think of a channel. You stand inside the channel and there's walls on either side of you. Um, on this alluvial fan on Mars, the channel is inverted. So the, the topography is, is the reverse of what you'd think of. You're standing on top of the bottom of the channel. And so we, we landed at the base of it. And, and the idea, you know, on Earth, these features form with some mixture of rocks, rocks and water uh, flowing out of a canyon or from a mountainside. And um, you get this basically pile of, of rocks and soil. So we, we landed on that say, successfully, which was great because it meant I still had a job. And then we had this, this choice to make. We could either go to the base of Mount Sharp, which is what we said we were going to do, or we could go to this basically in almost 180 degrees the opposite direction. So uh, we landed at a site we called Bradbury Landing after Ray Bradbury. And you can see to the east there's this place called Yellowknife Bay. And if you imagine to sort of to the south and, and to the west is, is the base of Mount Sharp, and that's where we were headed. And that's about five kilometers, or actually nine kilometers away. We're, we've driven about five towards it now. Um, and the reason was, was again, from orbital imaging. You can see in this picture, which is a high-rise image, that this area we called Yellowknife Bay is, is in this uh, carved-out basin, basically. And when we looked at it in thermal imaging, uh, it, had, it had a high thermal inertia. It still has a high thermal inertia. <laughs> and it's, it's, that was interesting because it meant it stayed warmer at night. Um, and that tells us that this material was basically more cemented. It's what you would expect in terms of an indurated surface that, that may be composed of fine-grained clay-like minerals. Um, and so it's not, it's not diagnostic of that, but it was certainly suggestive in the fact that it was concentrated in this topographic basin at the toe of an alluvial fan where we know in places like Death Valley water flows along uh, the surface. Uh, it, it made a compelling case that we should probably go check this out in terms of our overall mission, which is to look for habitable environments. Uh, so the decision was made on the science team to, to basically drive opposite to the direction we originally said we were going to go and head over to this place called Yellowknife Bay. And uh, the pictures on the right, I'll talk just briefly about the drive over there. The pictures on the right here, um, this is very close to our landing site. And then the picture just to the right of that is of a rock called Link. And so these, these rocks uh, we call conglomerates, and they're basically uh, amalgamations of rounded to sub-rounded to angular clasts. They're all bound up in a matrix of, of stuff. And you find these rocks on alluvial fans uh, on Earth. They're, they're sometimes called fanglomerates, but on Curiosity we're calling them conglomerates. And you can even see right here there's, there's this big rock just jutting out of the other rocks. And you can see that they're well cemented. They're sort of sitting at the surface in this layer of, of rocks. Um, and, and this is representative of a conglomerate, sort of confirming that Yes, we're on an alluvial fan surface, and we're looking at this grab bag of rocks 
that has been washed out from from the from the crater rim, effectively down the alluvial fan, and is cropping out where where Curiosity landed. And one of the first uh, that was one of the first results was that hey, look, we found a conglomerate on Mars that may be one of the first ones we found on Mars. And there's an instrument that that Jen works on called ChemCam in the bottom left here. It's called a, it's a laser ablation spectrometer. And so you, you blast a rock with a laser, turn it into a gas, and you look at the um, absorptions of different elements in the light that is, is in, the, in the gas that's been vaporized. And so this plot is basically just showing the distribution of uh, chemistries that we found along the way. And we found a grab bag of mafic and felsic rocks all, all along the, the traverse from Bradbury Landing to Yellowknife Bay. Uh, unlike some of the other rovers where we're, we're in basically geologic provinces, where we were, we're now we're looking at mafic rocks, there's some mixture of maybe carbonate rocks um, in the case of Spirit. Curiosity is literally in this, this grab bag mess uh, of alluvial fan stuff. And so that was a great find with ChemCam. And we, so we got to this place called Yellowknife Bay. And we did a bunch of things other than, other than that that I'm not going to talk about. We basically checked out the instruments. Uh, we did our first scoop of a soil. We ingested it into the wet chemistry lab instruments. Um, we found that, you know, basically a basaltic composition. Um, and then we made our way into Yellowknife Bay. So we, we found, this is sort of the top here, what, what it looks like in, in Yellowknife Bay. It's, it's, you can almost see there's these uplifted, they're called teepee structures, uh, in mud cracks. This surface reminds you of something that you'd see in the basin of Death Valley. And so, they decided right, right sort of in the heart of where all those teepee structures and the mud cracks are that we would drop the drill and drill our first hole. It's actually the first drill ever uh, drilled on the surface of Mars. Uh, we did two. We did a mini drill in the middle here. You can see that. We did a just a test to make sure we weren't going to get stuck to see how hard the rock was. And then we did a full drill hole. Um, I believe it went down to about six centimeters, although it filled up with dirt. So it's, it's a, what's called a rotary percussive drill. And so we don't actually take a core. We just basically hammer the rock until it powders and then scoop up what we can in the sides of the drill bit. And so uh, that, that image here shows, shows the drill and then the pattern on the right is an x-ray diffraction pattern uh, in an instrument in the wet chemistry lab called ChemMin. And so we take that powder and we ingest it into ChemMin and uh, those circles there tell you about the uh, despacing of the minerals that actually were in this uh, pattern, in, in the sample that we drilled. And so the cool part is that on the right, you can see right here, this fuzzy area is representative of phyllosilicates. And so we, we found the clay minerals that we knew we, that were at the base of Mount Sharp from, from orbit, um, but we'd identified them. And so that combined with a bunch of other evidence, some of which uh, comes from the image on the left, is from MassCam. And uh, MassCam has a filter set on it. And so we have about seven filters on each camera. And this image is what's called a hydration index. And so you can take a ratio of those two bands on the right, the, the near-infrared bands, and, and you can get a sense for how hydrated the, the minerals are. And so we, you can see these, these red and blue dots sort of light up in these veins. They call these veins or concretions on the surface. And so that tells us that these have some OH bound up in the mineral. And from the instrument Gen works on, ChemCam, we can tell that there's calcium sulfate. Uh, that, that, that that's what these are made of. And so I most likely, we haven't necessarily identified it because we can't drill directly into just those small vein structures, but we're, it's highly likely that this is a gypsum vein. Some of these are gypsum. We've also identified some of these veins that might not be hydrated. 
And so uh, we have a mixture of hydrated and unhydrated uh, veins. And so there's a rich geologic history going on here. We have clay minerals that we identified from Kenmin, and we have veins and concretions that are sort of percolating through the rocks, indicating that these rocks were probably buried, and then water ran through them, groundwater ran through them. The groundwater evaporated and deposited minerals like gypsum. And, and then the clay minerals formed later, basically through burial and diagenesis. And then now what we're looking at here in this picture on the top is something that's been exhumed later. So, so this is just wind erosion can actually erode back uh, this ancient lake bed, basically, that we're looking at. And so um, just by sort of combining all the data from these instruments, we're able to reconstruct a geologic history. And, and the fact that we found calcium sulfate indicates, it suggests that this, the water that percolated through these rocks was pH neutral. And so one of the first results from Curiosity was that, hey, we found a, we found a habitable environment on Mars. Um, almost not complete mission success, but partial mission success in that we, we found what we were looking for by driving in the opposite direction from, from the way we thought we would go. I, I put up this other image from, from DAN, the instrument I work on, uh, it stands for the Dynamic Albedo of Neutrons, just when I mentioned water and, and pH neutral water. So DAN's primary mission is to find water, and so we use this a lot around the drill site to basically see if we could map out regions that were enriched in hydrogen. And it turns out that uh, because we're at the equator, there isn't much water. Uh, most of the water on Mars is uh, at the poles. So some of the work that I've been directly involved in is figuring out how to use DAN to map out uh, elements that absorb neutrons preferentially. And so it turns out elements like chlorine that are really interesting elements to look at in places where there might be evaporite deposits in basins can significantly influence the neutron signal. And so we're, we're doing some tests now, and we did some tests around the drill site where we took DAN measurements uh, at equally spaced intervals on our way out to see if we could map out the distribution of hydrogen or the distribution of chlorine um, at the surface. And so we're still trying to figure out exactly what those data mean, but we're, we're able to acquire them. And it's a, it's, it's a probe, effectively it's a passive probe that we can use to get down to around 60 centimeters. And as I said, the drill hole is only six centimeters at most. And so, so the neutron detector is actually our only way to probe down to somewhere you know, on the realm of half a meter or so. And uh, you know, it's, it's an interesting geochemical tool. So that was our first drill hole, and, and then we decided... a basic question for you? Yeah, uh, go ahead. drill hole picture, what's the radius of those drill holes? They're around, I want to say, three inches or so. Does that sound right to you, Jen? I know that's in I, I, English units, but I... I think it's, I, I think it's smaller, actually. Is it smaller Is it than smaller? that? It's smaller. I think it's more like three centimeters. Oh yeah, it's just the drill bit. Sorry, I'm thinking yeah. of uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the drill bit is very is pretty tiny. It's so these are very small holes. Okay. They're very small holes. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so yeah, we we drilled our hole, a uh, very tiny hole, but the first hole on Mars, um, and then we decided to uh, take off to to go back to Mount Sharp, and it's about uh, nine-ish kilometers uh, from where we drilled this first hole, and and we're about halfway there. Um, we decided we've stopped at a few places along the way. Um, but we, we just recently drilled our second hole on Mars. We decided to stop for, for a little while. And uh, um, we stopped at a place called Mount Remarkable. <laughs> I think they name these for places in Australia at this point. Uh, but that, that picture that's right there is, is of Mount Remarkable. And the reason they chose that, there's a few reasons, but one of the main reasons we chose it, 
um, was because it's a very steep slope. And the idea is that, like I was talking about in Yellowknife Bay, where we're looking at an eroded a surface that was exposed due to erosion. Um, so if, if Mount Remarkable, and, and you can see there's a lip of rock sort of that surrounds Mount Remarkable, if that lip there of outcrop has been eroding back um, and there's a high slope right next to it, you actually reduce the amount of time that the rocks that are sitting underneath that big slope have been exposed to cosmic rays. And there's a, there's a paper out there that says that cosmic rays can destroy organic matter if they've been exposed for a long time. So if you sit, basically if you sit next to a big uh, ledge and you assume that the stuff underneath the ledge has been eroding back for a long, a short period of time um, so that it's been more recently exposed, you, you are making the assumption that any organic matter that was preserved will still be there because it won't be destroyed by cosmic rays. So that was, that was the assumption. And uh, we made a, a drill hole into those rocks that I've shown here. And you can kind of see the color of that. The drill tailings are a bit different. Um, compositionally, there's, there's uh, less clay, I believe, in this sample. Although, Jen, you can check me on that. <laughs> I believe that these are, these are more, uh, more mafic uh, in nature. But uh, we're not looking at the same type of deposit. Uh, that we were in, in Yellowknife Bay. And uh, we're, we're still doing analysis. Uh, the, the SAM team, the Chemin teams, are still doing analyses on this right now. But we, we still have sample, I believe, cached in the rover. And uh, we'll, we'll have more to say about that in a little bit um, once those teams can uh, do their full analysis on that sample. And once we did that drill hole, we, we packed everything up and started driving. So on the, this plot over here shows our drive from landing over to Yellowknife Bay. And now we're, uh, where we drilled was at this site called the Kimberley. That's where Mount Remarkable was. And, and we're headed to this place called Murray Buttes. And so we're only, you know, we're halfway there. There's one other place that we want to stop at. We, we may or may not stop there. It's uh, up for debate, but uh, it would be cool because uh, that location that currently doesn't have a fancy name or anything, uh, but there's a location along the way where we think that the lower layers of Mount Sharp are exposed. And so those are where we would find the clay minerals that we were, I was talking about earlier. And so we hope to stop there, um, check those out, and then continue on the way to Murray Buttes to do our, you know, effectively what Curiosity was, was sent to this location to do, to do this stratigraphic mapping up Mount Sharp to reconstruct the geologic history of, of, of Mars. Ideally, it's a, it's a big statement, but that's, that's what we'd like to do. So. I think that's that's all I got. <laughs> so, no thanks. That's very cool. Um, yeah. I've got a couple questions, but the first thing I'm wondering is, you know, I'm a, a theorist. I've never worked on, you know, this kind of that kind of a big experiment, let alone, you know, only a couple of small experiments. And I think, find it very fun the way you talk about this, almost like your whole team driving, you know, this mission along the surface of Mars. And so, I guess I'm wondering, number one, how long does it take physically for to get from one point to another, like you're pointing on this map? And then, more generally, just what's kind of the day-to-day -day occurrence of events in on a big team like Curiosity, where there are real-time results coming in? I'm not really sure what the speed of those results are, and then there's obviously a lot of analysis that has to go on before you can really say anything. So. Just curious yeah. if you have insight into that. So yeah, I'll, I'll address your first question: is how how quickly? And so you know, we landed August was it August fourth? Yeah, of of 2012, and you can see the progress there. You know, five kilometers in uh, a year and a half, and and I'd say on average we're driving around 30-ish meters a, uh, every Mars day. 
we hope to get, get that to be even greater. Uh, some, some Mars days are, we get more further than that, up to maybe 100 meters um, if we're using auto navigation. Um, but we like to have the rover drivers in the loop on where we're going. And so based on the, you want to build a stereo mesh with the cameras, um, the, the navigation cameras, are, they're not the color cameras, they're the navigation cameras that are in black and white, but those build up stereo meshes and we get distances to every point in the image. And those go out to about 30-ish meters that we're, we're safe, it's safe to drive where the rover planners feel comfortable uh, commanding the rover. And then from there they, they do auto navigation where the rover drives much slower. So uh, that's kind of how far we get a day. Um, just in general, um, some some days it's much less, and then if some days it's more, and then if we're going to do a campaign like in, in Yellowknife Bay, I mean we we spend a long time in Yellowknife Bay, um, and if you want we're, to run the there. samples, what's that? Yeah, we're we're there more than seven months. Yes, <laughs> yeah. I mean, so it's, it's it's I mean, so it's considering the mission, the nominal mission was one Martian year, so we're coming up, uh, I guess, was it June June twenty sixth? This will be the end of the nominal mission. So it's almost two Earth years, um, and we spent a huge fraction of the mission just sitting at Yellowknife Bay. Right. And, 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 and for good reason. Of, I mean, yeah. <laughs> no, it was, and in fact, yeah. it was interesting. Sorry to interrupt, but it was interesting when you said that um, we sort of the mission was partially successful. Actually, NASA declared the mission a you know complete success um, once we talked about the. Um, I guess the presence of this alkaline water. So if the if the, the main objective was to look for habitability, um, that's true. Yeah, I don't. I don't that. And actually, yeah. actually driving up the, the stratigraphic units of Mount Sharp was sort of a you know a, a dream or whatever. But it wasn't really considered part of the nominal mission just because it's very far from where we landed. So I mean, I, mean, I think NASA sets its bars a little bit low just so we can achieve mission success. <laughs> and, you know, but. Uh, <laughs> um, but I mean, certainly uh, Mount Sharp played a yeah. big part in why we went where we went. It's yeah. can't be ignored. <laughs> so. Well, actually, Craig, were you uh, something I didn't mention? Actually, when I introduced you, is that you're one of the subset of the current MSL team that has this legacy experience. So Craig has worked on the Mer rover. Uh, have you worked on both instrument, uh, both rover teams, both of the most of the exploration rovers? Yeah, um, I, I worked on mini tests. Uh, yeah. Okay. Until mini tests sort of wasn't being used anymore, but yeah. I, so, so the most recent rovers, the exploration rovers, and they're about a third of the size of, of Curiosity, they um, they were sort of identical rovers, and um, Opportunity is still going. Are, are you still active with Opportunity? I'm not, no. Okay, okay. But anyway, that's, that's so cool that you have this, you know, you're a young investigator and you have this legacy by having the opportunity to have worked on both of these rover missions, and that's, that's pretty cool. It's been, it's been fun, which I guess yeah. gets back to Jacob's question about uh, how the day works. <laughs> and, and so it's, um, there's a, there's a, there's a ta they call it the tactical schedule, and effectively certain members of the team are trained to perform certain roles, and those can be uh, engineering roles or science roles. And uh, I know more about the science side of it since that's what I've been on. Um, on the science side, you have people that are involved in the uplink process, and so there are a set of meetings at the beginning of our Earth Day. It's, it's all timed so that, you know, we, we basically have to time everything so that when the orbiters, we, we communicate with Curiosity two or three times a day, depending on how many orbiters pass over it. 
Um, those are the opportunities that we get. It's Mars Odyssey, Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, and we sometimes use Mars Express. Um, so the, those are our opportunities to communicate, both for Curiosity to tell us what it did and then for us to tell Curiosity what to do. And so our tactical days are planned around that. And so we'll start the, the science team will start the day. We'll look at where we are. We'll look at what we have the power to do and what the engineering team is prepared to support us doing in terms of uh, can we put the arm out today? Uh, can we just do remote science today? Meaning can we just blast things with the laser or take pictures? Or you know, can we actually put the arm out and, and drill something? That's, I mean, that would be a, a long shot. We don't plan those things tactically. They, they typically get prepared for those well in advance. But yeah, we can. Guide, those, are, sorry, those are guided by how much, you know, what, what the rover activities are, like you said. Exactly. How much, pow how much power each activity will take. Right. And, and there's, there's a variety of rover engineers that need to be staffed to support um, operating certain parts of the, the arm in terms of the drill. And there are experts in the drill, and there are experts in MOLLE, and there are experts in APXS. And so, depending on what you want to do, you need to make sure you have the right staff um, available. Um, but again, that gets sort of into the engineering side. So from the science side, there's there's a good three or four hours where we we evaluate the imagery that come, that's come down. We see if there's any amazing results. You know, if we found a dinosaur bone or something, you know, somebody would alert us. <laughs> but if there's something really amazing, uh, the science team sort of all gathers and, and discusses it, and then we discuss kind of what we'd like to do on that day well, based on what we're seeing. And um, certain people advocate from, from basically from the instrument teams, and they, they call them payload uplink leads. And they'll come in and they'll evaluate you know, the imagery and say, hey, I want to take a mass cam multispectral of this rock, uh, or hey, I want to shoot chem cam at this soil. And, and there are trade-offs to be made, and people sort of you know, might barter <laughs> a bit. And, uh, and then we come up with a plan. And that gets sent to the engineering team, basically, and they evaluate, you know, based on is that is this okay for rover health and safety? And there's an, a more iteration that goes back and forth, and, and that science side of the plan gets integrated into the main plan. And uh, later in the day, that, then it becomes basically all about engineering safety checks. And then at some point in the day, somebody pushes a button and sends that plan up to Mars, and uh, the rover yeah, executes it's, it's what happens. It's an engineer who pushes the button. Yes. They don't let they don't let a scientist push the button. Right. Make <laughs> right. suggestions. Yeah. The, the, checked and checked and checked, and then when the engineering group finally says okay, then they take it from there. Yeah. The day is very much uh, broken up into <laughs> science heavy in the beginning portion of the day, and engineering heavy towards as you get later and later into the day, and there's less room for changing what can happen. So. Uh, but it's so, it's interesting to to be involved. There's and there's even within the science team there's. There are, uh, I don't know if you want to call it a hierarchy, but there are just different levels of, of participation. And there's the payload uplink leads, which are basically representing the, the instrument teams. Like I was saying, somebody could advocate for a mass cam mosaic. And uh, that's where the really fun stuff happens. I mean, you're, you're sort of starting to barter with people about, you know, I want to do this, I want to do this. And our, our team wants to study this rock, and our team wants to study this rock. Um, but at, at another level, they're just above that. There's sort of the, the science theme group leads. And that's where this whole discussion is taking place. The, the discussion is in, the, in a virtual teleconference room of all the instrument teams talking about what they want to do. And there's a leader of that team that's wrangling the cats, basically, right, trying to get a plan together. Um, and, and we get the plan together, and, and that gets sent to the team. And the, the theme group lead basically represents that plan. 
And then there's a level above that, which is sort of the science operations working group lead uh, called the SOG chair. And that person is overseeing all of the science for what the rover is doing that day onto the next day, sort of making sure that that plan is consistent with the science of the mission as a whole. Um, and even above that person, there's somebody called a long-term planner. And that person is looking weeks and months ahead to make sure that we're on the right track in terms of, you know, we want to drill a month from now maybe. And so is this plan consistent with us wanting to drill? So there's, in terms of the science plan, there's, there's sort of this hierarchy of people that are involved. Um, and they're looking at the problem from different ways. And they're all equally as important, I think, um, and fun in their own way. So I think, Craig, yeah. Do you, do, you, do you serve as the payload um, the science um, payload I've, I've primarily been serving as the theme group lead so I've oh, yeah, been sort okay. of sitting as the group lead for the the PULs the payload uplink leads um, when I'm on shift and then when I worked at uh, Mayland Space Science I was doing the actual sequencing of the instruments so you do the uplink basically you know writing the lines of code that go up uh, and that's that's sort of a different process it's a uh, you know, it's between the engineering and the science teams, uh, but you're, you know, you're you're the one snapping the picture or evaluating, you know, make sure the instrument's safe and healthy. And so, um, it was, mean, I'm, yeah. I'm with you. I've been primarily the science theme group representative for ChemCam, and uh, most recently I've been training to do. I, I know how to do the data, uh, whatever payload, uh, PDL payload downlink, but then there's not really a time frame. Sure, you have all day to do that. But most right. recently, I've been training to start assuming some payload uplink lead responsibilities for ChemCam, and it felt like I was in a final exam. <laughs> I went out to Los Alamos to work with, with our mutual friend, Nina, and she said, oh, Jen, you're not going to learn unless you just do it, so go. <laughs> and then I'm like, ah, because there is time pressure because you need to get your reports in and all your recommendations and yep. you need to document everything so the people who are coming after you know what happened. Yep. And... Um, uh, I felt it wasn't so much that it was so hard, just there were so many pieces of information to assimilate all at once and keep track of and where to go on which web page and which folder and this and that. And so it definitely felt a little stressed, and it was a long day. Yeah. <laughs> but um, it's, it's, it's fun. You really feel engaged much more so than if you're sitting in your computer being a remote participant, at least for me. So yeah. You should but you good. should try doing the uh, theme group lead uh, role sometime. It's, it's yeah, uh, um, pretty interesting. <laughs> so that that well, I hear I hear the level of anxiety is changing in the voices of the leaders. <laughs> yes, <laughs> depending I mean, on how it, things it, are going. Yes, your your motivations yeah. are different. You're you're trying to make sure that you get a plan in, and the instrument teams are trying to make sure they get their observations in. And yeah. so it's uh, it's and to be fair, every every instrument team does it differently. So uh, with MassCam and with well, actually with just with MassCam, I wouldn't be able to do the uplink lead role. Uh, that's reserved for co-eyes on MassCam. Oh, um, really? But as a member of the science team, that's why I have done the the theme group lead role because yeah. uh, any member of the science team can can perform that role. Um, so yeah, it's it's you know. Any any small-ish team like this has politics and the way things work and are different on each team. So it's it, interesting. It has been it's, very interesting seeing the politics yeah. and seeing, um, the, as you mentioned, the hierarchy. That's yeah, hierarchy is a bad word because it. I think we're all in it together, <laughs> but it's not. Well, I don't mean to imply that one person is lording over anybody else. It's just it's different roles and yeah. <laughs> well, but I think there is a hierarchy. I mean. 
it's you know it, it all essentially the the leader is John Grassinger. Sure. Right. Yeah. But he's but I mean I think the goal is. Uh, we all have a common goal. We might have our sub goals, but a common goal is to get the best science we can. Yep. And most information to answer interesting questions about Mars. So. And the other, to address the other part of your question, Jacob, uh, in terms of how science, the actual science, feeds back into our process, um, at least once a week we'll have a meeting called a science discussion meeting, um, and that's the opportunity for representatives from instrument teams and members of the science team to discuss just basically how we're talking now, like in a informal-ish setting, um, what the newest results are from their instrument and what they've been studying. So it can be culminations of data from multiple instruments or just certain you know, one instrument's data set. Um, but, but we'll have opportunities, you know, once maybe multiple times a week where the science team just gets together and talks science and we're not necessarily constrained by the tactical pressures of making plans uh, that need to be uplinked at a certain time. So. Uh, we, we try to incorporate the, the real science, but um, we're really like this kind of mobile chemistry lab. <laughs> so uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a roving geologist, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounds like a really cool project to work on. I'm a little envious, to be honest. But <laughs> it sounds quite well organized, but you sort of have to be, because otherwise a mission like this would just not be possible at all. Yeah, uh, yeah. But yeah, I actually really enjoyed that. That answer. Thank you. Like it gives me a good insight into how a mission like this can be possible, and and how we get such good science out of it. So, I could probably talk all day to you about Mars if we wanted, but um, I'm sure we'll <laughs> be happy to. More time. <laughs> so we'll have to right. another time, perhaps over beers uh, in real life. Yes, sounds good. But listeners, thanks for tuning into our podcast. Uh, you can check us out online at bmsis.org/podcast. You can also get a copy of Craig's uh, handout uh, at that URL. Science replaces private prejudice with publicly verifiable evidence. There's real poetry in the real world. Science is the poetry of reality. We can do science, and with it, we can improve our lives.